it is good to be here. This is the first time I'll have preached this year. So it is good to be here. I am happy uh, that you've uh, braved the weather. It is cold out there. You guys did say it was cold, right? Um, Brave the weather. And I'm glad you're joining us online. I'm Steve, and I'm the senior pastor here at FBC. Um, before we jump into the sermon, um, I just wanted to remind us again, because things have changed in our world a little bit, haven't they? COVID has surged again, and I want to remind us that this is a season for us to lead with love, right? There's anxiety going on out there. There's anger going on out there. But you and I, let's respond in love. Let's lead with love when we encounter different, when we encounter people of different comfort levels and caution to try to empathize with where they're at and understand where they're coming from and adjust as needed what love would demand of us. You know, let's lead with love when we encounter extreme responses that seem out of place by giving grace and not taking it personally, knowing that the pressure of the situation is probably inflating their response. Let's lead with love with those we live with, our neighbors, and people out there, and people in here. All right? And listen, this is really hard to do, isn't it? Because we're all... (laughs) Okay, I'm feeling it. But I guess you are too. And so let's make sure we take the time we need and the space we need to kind of gather ourselves so we can be in these relationships and respond with love, okay? And that way we live out Jesus' words, right? That he said, they will know that they are my disciples by how they love one another. And may that be true of us. And this is our God-given moment to be doing this, to show the love that we know in Jesus Christ, right? Deal? Enough said? Okay. Um, So I wonder if you ever played make-believe when you were younger. You know that childhood game where you imagined yourself to be in a different situation and pretended to live it out? And so maybe, you know, we might have imagined ourselves to be in the last seconds of that championship game and we pretended to get the pass and, and take the shot and make it while the buzzer goes off and, you know, the crowd goes wild. Or maybe it's not, maybe it's we imagine ourselves to be in, you know, a Broadway show that we pretend that we're the lead of that show and we we sing the song that brings the tears to people's eyes and brings them to their feet in a standing ovation. Or maybe it's not something quite as dramatic or quite as grandiose. Maybe it's we imagined ourselves to be in a house and we pretended to be the mother or the father taking care of the home and managing how the things would run. Or we imagined ourselves to be in a classroom and pretended to be the teacher who leads and directs and educates the rest of the class. Make-believe is that staple of so many childhoods where the child imagines themselves in a zoo, you know, in a tea party, a courthouse, a racetrack, a construction site, a hospital, a battlefield, a church, wherever it may be, and then they pretend to be a part of that environment and work out how they do it. Do you ever remember playing that as a kid? Any child development expert or student majoring in that at UC Davis around us, they'll tell you that make-believe is, is essential as part of developing as a child. It's how children increase their creativity. It's how they learn to empathize. It's how they enhance their ability to relate with peers even. But eventually, we all have to grow up. 
And we have to stop playing make-believe and actually live the one and only life that you and I have been given. And granted, make-believe is fun. It's essential for our development. But the point of it is actually so that we were supposed to grow out of it so that we can actually live life as it really is and what it has to offer. And the question for us is, have we actually done that? Have we actually stopped playing make-believe with life, where we imagine life to be a certain way? We wish it to be a certain kind of adventure, so that we're actually busy living life as it is in our hands. And if we believe we have, then how would we know we're not playing some version of make-believe with our life? You see, part of living that you and I have to grapple with is to know what life is and to know what life is not. It's grappling with this concept so that we don't play make-believe with it, but we actually make the most of this life that we have been given. And that is the intent of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, where one who refers to himself as the preacher steps up to the mic, as it were, and then pulls the mask off of life to show us what it is and how we can wisely make the most of it without having to pretend it to be something different. And so that's the intent on this sermon series we're going to begin on Ecclesiastes that we're starting today called uh, Learning to Live. Now, just a word of caution, all right? Some may find these words, oh, shall we say, somber or sobering, maybe even a bit jarring, which is why Ecclesiastes can sometimes sound depressing. But I assure you, Ecclesiastes is not that, because that is to miss the forest through the trees. It's to miss the fantastic forest of wisdom for us to live life with its very sober sayings that stop helping us to play make-believe with life. And as a result, we're going to have to be really careful about how we study this book, right? We're going to, and how we read it. That we don't get, you know, too small of sections and kind of drill down on some of the sober, depressing things that it has to say to us. We're going to need to take some larger chunks so that we can see this whole section and how to learn how to live that gets the most out of life. Does that sound like a plan? Are you with me on this? Okay, so let's start by taking our Bible out or taking, get your phone app out on your phone to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And this is where the preacher is going to step to the mic. He's going to pull off the mask of what life is without any pretense and without any delusions about it. And that way from the get-go, you and I will know We'll have an unvarnished understanding of what life is that will actually open up the possibility for us to get the most out of life. And Liz Ballou here is going to read it aloud, so let's pay attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It is already it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. So that's what the preacher has to say to us. Now, who is this preacher? The preacher alludes to being Solomon, the son and successor of King David, the wisest man to have lived on the face of the planet until Jesus arrived, but he doesn't say that outright. And so the preacher may be taking on the persona of Solomon as a teacher of wisdom to gather us together for a listen in wisdom. And his wisdom begins with a very somber observation about everything where he says, vanity of vanities. And he repeats that for good measure. And then if he throws it in, all is vanity. How is that for happy thoughts, right? Vanity is this cornerstone and key idea that he wants to convey about life. In fact, it's so important that he keeps coming back to it, and he's going to say it over and over and over again in Ecclesiastes. But this idea of vanity he wants to lead off with is so important that he repeats himself. And he intensifies that sense of vanity that he's talking about. In the ancient world, this is, the, this is, the, you know, this is how we would do it today. We would say, vanity! And so vanity is what everything amounts to. Vanity. Not in the sense of pride or emptiness or meaninglessness. But in the sense of the Hebrew word behind this word, uh, hebel. Literally, hebel is a vapor or a breath. It's what we see on really cold mornings when we breathe out. And that cloud comes from our mouth like this, that then quickly disappears as quickly as it appeared. No matter how cold it may be, that's hebel. Vapor, breath. And in the preacher's mind, this is what everything amounts to. That's what life is. Hebel, the merest of breaths. And so that means life is fleeting. 
We are born, we live, we die, and it happens so quickly like that vapor we breathe out on a cold morning. That's why we're in shock that it's 2022 already, as if it snuck up on us. When my sons were toddlers, older people would come and they would advise me and tell me to enjoy it because it goes so fast. The days are long, but the years are short, they would tell me. And so I was sure to squeeze every last drop of time with my boys. And you know what? It still went fast. You know, one minute I'm making scrambled eggs with them as they stood on on a chair in their onesie pajamas. And then suddenly they're shaving, driving, and graduating from my home. Time flies. And not just when we're having fun, because life is fleeting. But Hebel also means that life is elusive. Try to grab life and all that you have is a fistful of air. Like trying to grab the vapor from our breath on a cold morning, which is real and and physical, but it dodges our clutches when we try to grab it. Consider what we understand, know and understand. We, we We all understand how the world works to some extent, but then why does life baffle us the way it does? Why do we keep hearing experts talk about the end of the pandemic and yet Omicron is here? Why do we pick that line at Safeway and it always goes slower than that other line we don't pick, right? Why do we feel as we do when many times we can't put our finger on it? Why do horrible people prosper with long lives while good people we know and love have it so hard? Because life is elusive. Or consider what we do with our lives. We all have some semblance of control in life, but then why can't we assure the outcomes of bigger, more important things in life? Why can we pour ourselves into something and sometimes it succeeds and sometimes it fails? Why can we do all of the right things with vaccines and boosters and masks and yet still be dealing with COVID two years later? Why can't we control the security of our job, the health of our bodies, what people we have good relationships with, what we'll be doing in 10 years? Control what you can control, we're told. That's the advice we're given, mostly because of how much our lives are out of control. Because life is elusive. Life is hebel. It's fleeting and elusive, which prompts the preacher to question right after this, you know, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What gain is there to be had as we live life under the sun? That is, living in this fallen world that is so far removed from God's original, purposeful paradise. What profit can we gain on this side of eternity? What excess can we cobble together in living underneath the fall of, from grace? The implied answer is nothing. 
No profit, no gain, no excess. Living under the sun and on this side of eternity, we have entered into this fallen world with nothing and we will leave with nothing. Life is fleeting and elusive. That's what lies under the mask of life that so often we put there. That's the sober, unvarnished reality of life without any pretense. And so many of us are feeling this right now, aren't we? Uh, This nagging sense that life just does not add up with curvage surging again and how it's forcing us to readjust, that we've done the right things and how it just kind of keeps going. That's why we're carrying the anger we are, the disappointment, the anxiety. But maybe, maybe, maybe there's a part of us that wants to doubt this. Maybe it's not as bleak as the preacher tells us that maybe life isn't really hebel. I mean, maybe some of us are doing some mental gymnastics right now, trying to figure out if there's a loophole in this arrangement. You know, or maybe some of us have been insulated with this from inexperience or, or just, you know, material resources that we have to appreciate how fleeting and elusive life can be. And that's okay. Because the preacher doesn't force us to take it for granted. He takes our misgivings and he takes our doubts and our resistance and he sits us down in front of the portrait of a broader scope of creation. of of human history, and he lets us sit there and lets us see and reflect on how hebel our life really is. And here's how our lives fall into the broader range of nature and creation. This is what he says in verses 4 to 8. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. That is, people come and people go, but the earth, it just keeps churning. It just keeps cycling without so much of a flinch. (laughs) After all, he says, just look at it. He says the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and and around and around it goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. He's just pointing out the cycles of nature here, right? The sun rises in the east and it sets in the the west day after day after day. The sun has been doing that long before we were born. It's done it every day of our lives and the sun will continue to do that long after we are gone because the earth just keeps going on its course around the sun. And the wind, the wind blows, you know, to and fro here and there all over the face of the earth. The jet stream, you know, persists to blow irrespective of our life, our birth, our our death. And the water's on the earth. The water moves from sea, stream to sea, to cloud, to, to rain, and back to the stream. And sure, you know, Sea levels may be rising, but they're never filled to overflowing. Water just keeps cycling on this earth, he says, which is what it's been doing before we drew our first breath and long after we take our last. Or think of it like this. 
In 2006, a group of 404 astronomers who were part of the International Astronomical Union voted that Pluto uh, would no longer be a planet. In their expertise, they demoted Pluto from a planet to a dwarf planet. And that created a bit of an uproar, didn't it? An uproar that persists today with continued explanations coming and articles being written. Just Google it for, uh, if you're interested. I mean, astronomers are still upset. The casual observer is missed, especially if they learned about Pluto being a planet in school. In fact, some of you are miffed right now that I even brought it up, like I picked a scar or something like that. But do you know who does not care if Pluto is a planet? Pluto. Right? Pluto doesn't care a lick of what we think, whether it's a dwarf planet or a planet. It just continues on the course around the sun that it's been on way before these astronomers darkened the door of this world. And it will continue to do it way after they leave it too. People come. People go. But the sun and the wind and the waters and Pluto just continues to keep cycling as they have. And so the preacher concludes. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That is, these repetitive cycles of nature, so impervious to our presence, so impervious to our existence, only brings weariness because we don't make a dent on it. And it leaves us unsatisfied because we never see it all. We never hear it all. There's just another cycle that keeps coming right after it. You see, the whole of creation churns and cycles irrespective of our lives and well beyond our capacity to take it in. Our lives are so fleeting that nature doesn't so much as hiccup at our entry or in our exit from this earth. And our lives are so elusive that the creation, it just keeps going and going and going without considering us and laying well beyond our ability to fully take it in. That's how fleeting and elusive each one of our lives are against the backdrop of nature and creation persisting without so much of a hint of our lives making a mark on it. And so as you sit in front of this portrait of creation, does that make you feel just a little bit smaller? Does that help you to see, maybe appreciate a little bit more the fleeting and elusive nature of your life? But it's not just creation that speaks to our life's fleeting and elusive nature. It's also human history. Here's our mark on human history. Very starkly put, the preacher says in verses 9 to 11. He says this. He says, he says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done again. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. 
Just as nature goes through its cycles without regard to life, so also human history goes through its courses without blinking our existence. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again, the preacher says. And immediately we start thinking of, you know, counter-arguments, inventions, and technologies that counter the claim. His, his claim is not that new things will never be invented, only that events and actions of people in history are repeated over and over and over again. Humanity's new ideas are old ones that are reframed. Trending fashions are just, you know, old fashions respun. I mean, the 80s are coming back really quickly right now. And new jobs are just old jobs redone, reframed. And what is even more sobering is that there is no real human progress or advancement because whenever things, new things do appear, humanity always tends to end up using it for depraved and selfish ends. That's why all the things we bemoan about our society and with people just continue to go on, even despite our best efforts of injustice and racism and poverty and abuse of power and hatred. Or consider this question. You know, why is the standard American railroad gauge four feet, eight and one half inches? Although the exact details and the facts are debated among historians, many believe it is because it was, it was the result of the width of English railroad builders that they bought, brought with them to America. And so then we ask, well, why did the English build them this wide? Because the first English rail lines were built by the same people who built the pre-railroad tramways. And that was the gauge that they used. And then we have to ask, well, why did they use that gauge? Because the same jigs and tools and people who built the wagons also built the tramways. And they used standard wagon wheel spacing. And wagon wheel spacing was very standardized for a very practical reason in Britain. When Britain was ruled by the Imperial Roman Empire, Roman war chariots would, with standard spacing in their wheels, and they, they, they rolled over these networks of roads, creating these deep ruts. And so if the British wagon wheels didn't match those ruts, they'd break the wheels. And why did Romans choose the spacing between the wheels of their chariots? Because after a bunch of trial and error, they discovered that the best width was to accommodate two horses behind. About four feet, eight and one half inches wide. <laughs> and so the American railroad gauge is handed down all the way back from the imperial realm, according to some historians. But wait, th there's even more to this. Do you know the rocket boosters that attach the main fuel tanks for the you know, space shuttle in orbit, right? They, are made, they were made in Utah, and the engineers designed it to be shipped from the factory to the launch site by railroad. And on its route, it has to go through a railroad tunnel that is just slightly wider than a railroad track. So even if the engineers wanted to have big, fat, solid rocket boosters, they were limited by the railroad gauge. And so in a manner of speaking, you know, rocket boosters followed the design to accommodate two horses behinds. <laughs> and now, even if you doubt the direct lines of that argument, right, 
It's still an amazing coincidence that railroads, trams, wagons, Roman chariots, rockets use relatively the same gauge, four feet, eight and one-half inches. As much as things change, things actually just stay the same. The very point that the preacher is making for us. And as such, the preacher tells us there is no remembrance. No real legacy that any life can have. People come and people go, but no one truly remembers them. After all, really quickly, who's your great-grandparents? Mark Twain. <laughs> he said it best in his autobiography. It's only he can say it. When he spoke about any person passing from this world, he said this in his autobiography. He said, they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence. Happy thought. A, a world which will lament them a day and forget them forever. And that's how fleeting. That's how elusive our lives are against the backdrop of human history. Cycling as it does without so much a blip from our lives. And so as you stand in front of that portrait, the portrait of human history, I mean, doesn't that make you feel a little bit more fleeting in your life? Doesn't that make you feel just a bit more elusive? Life is fleeting and elusive. That's our conundrum of living life under the sun. That's the code we have to crack of living in a fallen world that has been warped by sin on this side of eternity. And so here's the million-dollar question that, that the preacher would have us ask and answer. It's why we're going to land here today. How will you crack that code? You can't avoid it. Because we all have this one and only life to live that we've been given. So how will you crack that code? Down spiral into depression because of how bleak this prospect is of no control and no lasting mark of life. Give full vent to your desires because that's what you feel like you all got left. Ignore it? Just keep doing what we're doing? Something else? To do any of that is to play make-believe. What we actually need is someone else who has cracked the code to someone who has lived beyond the sun and can give us the code. That someone is God. And part of the code he's given is found in the rest of Ecclesiastes, so you got to come back each and every week. That's the teaser right? To get the pieces of this code, to learn how to live life as it actually is. And not to give you a spoiler in this, but he'll show us what we should and should not expect out of life. 
And we'll discover it's not a matter of trying to capture and control life to wring it out for our purposes and what we want from it. No, no, no. But not having to chase it in the first place. To receive it, bloom from God as he plants it. And the completion of this code actually comes much later than Ecclesiastes when God's son entered into life under the sun with us in Jesus Christ. He would identify us, identify with us and living life under the sun. He would die on a cross with a darkened sun. And then he would rise and resurrect in victory to free us from these endless cycles of nature and human history by binding us to God who lives beyond the sun. If we come to faith in Jesus, keep pursuing Jesus in obedience and trust, of binding us to God in relationship with him, that transcends any fleeing part of our lives, that swallows up those elusive pieces we feel. And so, yes, life is fleeting and elusive, but God, he has cracked the code. And he has completed it in Jesus so that we need not play make-believe anymore. So let's pray to that end, shall we? God, so often, we just ignore so much of what life is. We we, we want to feel more important than we probably actually are. We want to feel as if we are greater than we actually are. But God, thank you for this uh, reality check that we might know and understand what our life actually is because it gives us context for what we're actually feeling and experiencing right now, especially right now, when life just doesn't seem to be adding up, where the the pieces just don't seem to be falling in place as we have it envisioned. And so, God, we look to you in renewed trust. We, We wait expectantly for you to share with us this code that you have cracked, that there's new wisdom to be had. There's, in fact, joy and celebration and wisdom and knowledge that can come if we would just stop chasing and simply receive from you and receive that even in Jesus Christ. Knowing that we are not bound to life under the sun, but we are tethered to one beyond the sun. That would transcend that fleeting sense of our life. That would swallow up what feels so very elusive about our lives. And so, God, we sit here in trust of you, expectant that you are going to speak to us, you're going to teach us, and you're going to teach us how to live as you've designed us to live. And so, God, make that so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.